Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 31, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. He's back. I'm back. Joe, where have you been? I've been, I'm always busy. I'm too busy for this. (laughs) No, I'm not. I'm really not. Please have me on more often. (laughs) (laughs) You have been moving house, haven't you? I have moved house. I have, yes. I've grown up, bought a house, moved house, getting married, all that jazz. Have you got a games room? I have got a games room. I haven't been to your new place yet. No, you haven't been to my new place. Once it's all set up, I will share photos because uh, it's coming along very nice. Oh, we wonderful. have um, almost every main console from 8-bit onwards getting set up, LED lights and all that oh, jazz. I'm thinking a, a retro hour podcast meet up at Joe's house. I'm, I'm, I'm actually feeling it. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely feeling but, it. About you know, 3,500, 4,000 listeners a week, yeah? That would be a big house, isn't it? It is a big house, actually. <laughs> it's in the East Wing. <laughs> yeah, the East Wing. Nobody go to the West Wing. <laughs> great to have you back on the show, though, no, Joe. Great to be here every time. And uh, obviously, on the show every week, we talk about the big news stories for the first half an hour. And then, in the second half of the show, we hand over to a special guest. Now, this is actually someone that we've wanted to get on the podcast um, since day one, I think it's fair to say. Totally. And- this is one of our hit list, one of the <laughs> top Amiga people that we won on the podcast, and it's Jim Sachs. Now, to put it into perspective, um, Jim started on the Commodore 64. He did stuff like Sorcerer Attack. He did a lot of those um, Cinemaware games. He did uh, Defender of the Crown 1, 2, the uh, CDTV version of that as well. He also did stuff like the startup graphics and the UI for the CDTV, some of the CD32 stuff. And later on, he did what I think must be the world's biggest selling screensaver. <laughs> yeah, the Serene Screen Aquarium. Yeah, that Microsoft actually kind of ripped him off over, didn't they? So yeah, we'll, uh... some really interesting stories on this. And this guy's art is amazing. So even if you've listened to this interview, please go and check out his images online because, you know, we don't do it justice talking about them. Well, Joe's had a look. <laughs> Joe always comes in on the Amiga guests for some <laughs> I, reason. I don't know what it is. I'm just drawn to the Amiga guests. I know nothing about Amiga. And every time it's like, oh, do you want to come to the show? I'm like, yeah, what we're going to talk about? What guests we got? Oh, we got this guy who did Amiga. We got this guy who did Amiga. <laughs> and I'm just saying, like, oh, okay, cool, cool. But I've had a look at it, and it is really impressive just to think that this guy sat there and painstakingly made that artwork with a mouse, which I couldn't, none of us can even do with, you know, a pen and paper or whatever, you know, with all the, the correct art gear. <laughs> and he's just, yeah, it's wow. I can barely write my name in Microsoft Paint yeah. with a mouse. That, yeah, well, yeah, that's, that's the thing. So, <laughs> so yeah, Jim Sachs going to be on the podcast in around half an hour from now. Now, we've got to give a thank you to... Um, we've we've men- mentioned this uh, on our Facebook page. Yeah, yeah, and uh, we've linked the article so you guys can read it as well I'm gonna online. Have another, I'm going to have another look at it because I'm, I'm quite impressed with this. Yeah. Uh, this is uh, <laughs> Left Lion magazine. Now, I, I presume most of our audience... Um, may not have heard of this, although we have actually uh, we've got to give a shout to the nice people of Coventry, oh, who, yeah. who are our biggest audience this week. Oh, wow. For yeah. some reason, we're huge you in Coventry. You know what it'll be? It's because I worked in Coventry a couple of months ago for a month, and you know everybody obviously saw me around in the street and stuff, and just thought, <laughs> oh, bloody hell, there's that guy who's been on that show like three times. <laughs> we're spreading the word. I was, I was spreading the word. <laughs> they're like all weather spins. <laughs> well, I've been to quite a few retro shows in Coventry, actually. They've got quite a scene there. Yeah. So. Well, if you're listening to Coventry, shout out. We seem to have quite a, quite a big following there. But also, Nottingham was our second this week, and I think because uh, there is a magazine that goes out to about 40,000 people in Nottinghamshire, and they've actually done like a, well, we are, we are actually Centerfell guys. Yeah, um, it's, it's kind of the, uh, the, the cool Nottingham cultural magazine, this mm-hmm. one as well. So it's really good. We've uh, 
we're on there for a month, so we're in this week's issue. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously, I imagine, you know, the majority of our audience are not in Nottingham, so you might not have seen this magazine, but it's definitely worth reading the article. Um, so I've done some really nice artwork of you and I as well. We've got, like, a... Little pixel versions <laughs> of I'm, not, I'm not jealous of that in the slightest. <laughs> They've even got my Czech shirt. I know, that's yeah, brilliant. I yeah. saw that. It's got his flick, his hair flicking up and everything. I was like, that's brilliant. <laughs> but you know what's great about this? They did, like, a two-page interview with uh, me and Ravi, and it's where she mentioned here, here that we want to get Jim Sachs on. And who's on this week? Oh, it's like we planned it, yeah. You know what I mean? So, uh, yeah, thank you, thank you to the guys at Left Lion for doing the uh, little feature on us this week. So, uh, now let's start with this week's first story, which is um, gaming coming back to television. Yeah, I've seen this uh, on Dave. Uh, what's it called? 8-Bit. Go 8-Bit. Go 8-Bit, there we go. Which is a bit of a disappointing title, considering it's not all 8-Bit. Well, this is the thing. <laughs> this is what got me, so... I'm reading it, and I'm like, oh, go 8-bit. Well, uh, go 8-bit, if you actually see on the article, there's a video underneath, and it seems to be a kind of a pub event. Well, so that, That's that's all well and good. Like, that's great, you know, a lot of 8-bit arcades and, you know, in the 80s yeah. and stuff, in the old pubs, but uh, the first thing it mentions is Tekken. <laughs> <laughs> so I understand it doesn't have to be strictly 8-bit, but... Well, I, I think it's kind of, they have... Uh, an event where they get everyone drunk and mm-hmm. it's kind of like drink or draw or something like that. So they get everyone drunk and they do stupid stuff like a guy's got to play Street Fighter whilst eating loads of spaghetti or something. <laughs> and they're, they're basically going to take this pub concept, put it onto Dave with Dara O'Brien, who's the new uh, Robot Wars host mm-hmm. as well. And then they're going to get celebrities to do these stupid gaming challenges. But yeah, I don't think it's really innovative, but it's... a uh, at least it's a bit of competitive gaming back yeah, on telly. It, it kind of reminds me a bit of a cross of like Games Master and 8 out of 10 cats. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, yeah. That's, that's the vibe I'm getting. I mean, it's like, yeah, Dara O'Brien, he's a funny guy. Mm-hmm. Is he going to be the right guy for it? Is he a gamer? Well, they're, men- the they're mentioning who they got on the show like, lined up for the, the first few episodes. Russell Howard, Bob Mortimer, Rachel Riley. I mean, oh, so, Bob I always want to show Rachel Riley in. Um, Jason Manford, Dave Gorman. So it is, you know, it's all these like comedians that you see it's, on the Wagyu for you. Yeah, it's the usual lot that you see on TV these days. But like I say, like are any of them gamers? I've never. Well, Dara O'Brien did a lot on um, oh Screenwipe. All right, with Charlie Brooker, and he did a whole section about Gears of War, which was really oh, okay. funny. So I think he has got a background in it, and oh, okay. he is in Robot Wars. But then a lot of people are saying, you know, he's not the right presenter for Robot Wars because he's not that enthusiastic or. You know, so we'll see how this goes down. We'll see how it pans yeah. out. I mean, I'll be tuning in. I'll be watching it. Mm-hmm. Anything to do with games, we'll come Maybe it'll be a bit more exciting than Video Game Nation, but I don't think it's going to be Games Master coming back. You know, no, no, it's <laughs> going to be no Games Master. Well, apparently they're going to spread uh, spread it through a different um, range of genres and eras. Apparently, so there will be stuff like Pong and Tetris, and uh, it'll be stuff like you know FIFA 2017 as well. So it'll be like apparently a big mixture of kind of different genres and eras of games. Even though it's called Go 8-Bit and it's in like an 8-Bit font. Yeah, but, okay. it could be. Good. Good. You know, yeah, no. well, let's, let's not doubt it until we see I was it. Say, eh? Let's not knock it until we've tried it. <laughs> it's going to be out in um, autumn this year on Dave. Um, when it starts, I'm sure we'll have an opinion on it. Yep. <laughs> now, this is quite nice news. Sega's on the up. I've seen. Yeah, for once. Yeah, <laughs> for the first time in a while. <laughs> now, well, let's bear in mind last year, Sega lost $93 million in 12 uh, months in, uh, in 2015. Yeah. Um, Probably not their biggest loss. Yeah, they're back in the black, not the red this time around. Yeah. But they're saying this is because. Now, this. I read this article, we were looking at this on GameSpot, and they reckon the reason that they've had such a big comeback is Fantasy Star 2 Online has now obviously come out on the PS4, but only in Japan, I think. Yeah, I've seen some game footage of this. I saw, Funny enough, I saw it yesterday at work, 
when I should have been working. And I was like, what's that? That looks good. What, what the hell is this? Like, just I straight away thought it was like Xenoblade or something like mm-hmm. that. And uh, then I realised, oh, it's Fantasy Star Online 2. And my first thing was, wait, there's a Fantasy Star Online 2? Like, that was my first reaction. And then I'm reading this article and apparently they've already got like 130,000 players. Yeah, but I think they're all... They haven't released it in Europe. They haven't released it in America. No. It's all in, like, Japan. I mean, 130,000, it doesn't sound that much, really, when you think about it. It's not. It's not massive, but it's it's Sega. <laughs> but Fantasy Star, the original one, I remember it on the Dreamcast, yeah. Star Online. It's and still that, played, isn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, you can actually join third-party servers and stuff and mm. still play it. But I looked at, you know, when Fantasy Star 2 came out, and it came out on the PC in Japan in 2012. Oh, really? Yes, it's been... I mean, they keep saying they're going to bring it out in the West, but, like, mm. four years down the line, they still haven't. <laughs> well, I mean, they finally. Well, obviously, it's on, it's on PS4, is it? Did you say? Yeah, well, apparently, I think they've just released it on the PS4 recently. I don't know. Um, well, like you say, 130,000, it sounds a lot, but mm-hmm. then is it a lot? And is it worth releasing it in America just to get 50,000 players or something? I'm well, the- just hoping that one day they get enough money back to become a hardware company. <laughs> I know it's a distant dream, but. Ne- oh, never going to happen, Ravi. Yeah, it's never, never going to happen. happen. The Dreamcast, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, and the, oh, the Mega Drive 3. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, we did have a Genesis 3. Yeah, the, the tiny little one. The tiny yeah, little yeah. shitty budget one, <laughs> which doesn't even have a light up for the reset button, for the power button. It's just a red sticker. Yeah, they did gradually get worse as <laughs> yeah. it went on, didn't they? But they're also citing um, Total War Warhammer, which you might know a bit more about that than me. Uh, yeah, well, they own the Warhammer brand, yeah. and it had a disastrous start. If you go onto my channel, you can mm. check out videos of the early version of Warhammer that they did which was Warhammer Online. It was going to come out before Warcraft. It's going to be massive. Then they spent 30 million on the project and mm. then they said it was going to be 30 million to finish it. Wow. So they didn't finish it. They oh, went wow. and did a total new game, Age of the Reckoning, which got massively popular and then they've obviously yeah. continued that series. Well, apparently so. this game's had 20 million copies have been sold, so I imagine that's where probably most of the money's come from. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but again, it's like, what's weird about Sega is, though, we mentioned, you know, the Fantasy Star Online, that, that is, you know, Japan only. I've, I've got a feeling that there are areas of the world where Total War's not out. I think it might only be Europe and maybe America. Okay. And, but Sega keep doing this really weird thing recently, only releasing games in regions. You know, we talked about there was that um, Sonic Classics 3D collection for the 3DS mm. a few months ago. So I'm on holiday about a month ago, yeah. and I was bringing my 3DS away with me. I've got a game on the plane and, you know, waiting on the balcony at home while the missus gets ready and that. So I thought, that sounds great to play on the plane. Loads of good games in there, all remastered in 3D. Yeah. Went into Game Master if they had it. They'd never heard of it. Did a bit of a search. Oh, it's only out in America. You can't get it in Europe. And it's like... Why? Why keep doing these things? Yeah. It was the same back in the 90s. It's the same now. It's just Sega for you. <laughs> but we live in a global market now. You know, news spreads around all the world and like people are going to be interested in this kind of stuff. But Sega keep bringing back these franchises, but where is like, you know, where's the new Streets of Rage? Where's well, the new Crazy Taxi? Streets of Rage became Fighting Force. That's a whole different discussion. <laughs> Wouldn't that be a good HD update of Streets of Rage? It would be. You know what? Funny you should bring that up. It's the 25-year anniversary of Streets of Rage 1 today. Is it really? It is today. Oh, no way. Yeah, yeah, that's weird. <laughs> well, what a soundtrack. Also, Road Rash, guys. Oh, Road yeah, Rush, yeah Road Rash. Yeah. I've played that in a while, actually. But in fact, I don't even have a copy of Road Rash. <laughs> I think I've got, I've got it on, like, the 3DO. I play it randomly. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, Sega have got so many franchises they could revisit, and people would be interested, I think. You know, totally. Uh, but, yeah, we need them in every part of the world, please, Sega. But it's good to see the back in profit. Mm, definitely. Be, I bet is. some of that profit's from the... The re-releases they did on Steam as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. I can imagine they probably got some Oh, that, that, that Sega Vault. Yeah, yeah mm. the Sega Vault. Every little penny helps. Exactly. As they say. <laughs> uh, well, this is quite interesting. Have you heard of Brutal Doom before? I haven't, 
but I can imagine what it is. <laughs> so essentially what they do with Brutal Doom is, um, someone's actually done a port of Doom 64 from the Nintendo 64, mm. upgraded it and put a lot of stuff that wasn't in the original game that they had to take out for limitations of space on the cartridge. Kind of made it the game it was always intended to be. Upgraded the graphics to really sharp resolution. Like optimised They look it, nice. So. They look nice. They but, look a lot nicer <laughs> than the normal Doom 64. So. The reason it's called Brutal is because... They essentially try to make it the goriest they can. <laughs> so they've actually put a 24-minute video up showing some of yeah. the gameplay. And if you look, it's just like a bloodbath. I'm watching it now. And I, I, I straight away, I thought Brutal Doom is going to be hard as hell. Uh, Doom's quite hard as it is. And to be fair, it looks about the same difficulty as normal. It just looks really gory. looks really nice. If you're into that kind of like 64-bit, 32-bit era, it looks really, really nice. So it's worth checking it out. I just love all the blood splattering on the walls and stuff. <laughs> it's really good. It's like the new Doom as well. If you play that, it's like... Uh, Still not played it. Oh. I, I actually thought I was going to get it for my birthday last month and uh, I didn't get it. <laughs> oh. So uh, what's this release for? Is it the EverDrive or...? Unfortunately, you can't play it on an N64. It's PC only. Ah, um, what? Is it emulated? Enough. No, yeah. it's just... I think you just it runs on this engine, so... Ah, okay. Yeah, it's just kind of... You, you download the engine on the PC and play ah, it. Yeah. Okay. They said the, the N64 hasn't got the graphical power to... To run this, unfortunately. Tell you one thing that worth mentioning about it is they've really brightened it up. If you've ever played the original Doom 64, you can't actually see a thing. <laughs> it's yeah. just a really dark, horrible game. Whereas I, this looks a lot more playable. That's in 64 all over, though, isn't it? It's this is true. dark and blurry. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The SNES was such a colourful console, and then the N64. Yeah, it's nice to see. You know, old, old games kind of getting a bit of love and upgraded, and you know, it's sharpened nice up. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Now, uh, this is quite good news if you want a little emulation station on the go. Yeah, it's the uh, Vita's been cracked, basically. Well, it's a, it's a new exploit that mm-hmm. you can use to play non-Sony games, so usually it's been locked into this kind of Sony DRM stuff. But um, it's quite interesting, actually, how this works, because it's a little code that you download on your Vita, and then you transfer files using an FTP server. All right, okay. What, by the Wi-Fi? Yeah. So it's it's not like you're actually putting an SD card in there or anything, but you're transferring your backups directly to there. So you this opens a whole load of possibilities mm. because the Vita was quite fast. I don't know, Joe, have you used one? Cause I've never played a Vita. I, I've never I've played never, one. Never played played <laughs> None of us have. <laughs> never played a Vita. I've uh, played a PSP, obviously, uh, which got cracked quite early on, didn't it? Yeah. Um, but no, I've never actually played a Vita. Just never, I don't know, handheld gaming just hasn't appealed to me the last kind of like four yeah. or five years well maybe that's because I've had you know smartphones I don't know if they've ruined that for me so well, well it says here you know the emulators that they could have running uh, SNES Genesis but Game Boy and the Game Boy Advance and all of that stuff mm. so you could have all your little portables on one Vita I guess and them UMD movies as well if you could watch on it I remember <laughs> I don't think, this hasn't got the disc drive on it I don't think it's just no. cards but it's um what some people are saying about this is it could actually be powerful enough to emulate the PS2. I was going to say, I mean, the PS, from what I've seen from the PS Vita, it looks pretty damn sharp, pretty mm-hmm. damn nice. So it wouldn't surprise me if you could emulate PS2 on that at all. Like, it wouldn't, if somebody just showed me one and went, oh, we're running an Xbox game on that, or we're running a GameCube game on that or something, it wouldn't shock me. I'd, I'd be like, oh, yeah, from what I've seen, it's a nice little powerful handheld. Now, if it had a PS3 game running on it, that'd yeah. be pretty impressive. <laughs> I think it's not quite at the power no. of the PS3, but it, it's kind of between the PS2 and the PS3 from yeah. what I've read. But I, I love this quote here from the creators of this exploit that, goes, um, that said, we let you put non-approved stuff on there, but, you know, it doesn't disable DRM features or let you run Vita backups or wares. Um, however, he doesn't mind if people actually do that. He's not there to be, like, you know, an authority on it, but he doesn't condone it. 
So, <laughs> just to cover his own back. Yeah, in other words, it can run pirate games, I yeah. think is what he's, what he's essentially saying, isn't he? Love the top quote on the story here as well. It means the Vita's finally going to get some games. Yeah, this is true. <laughs> uh, how many people do you know who play PSP Vita? I had. Uh, I've got one mate who owns it. Oh really? And like, he's used it about three times, and it sits exactly. in the box. But even Sony, I mean, they brought it down. They just stopped loving it straight away, yeah. didn't they? It's <laughs> it's a bit of a shame because it is a decent handheld from what I've heard. I feel but... like it's just like with Sony, like they just feel a necessity to try and compete. Like they just try and kind of throw it out there just to kind of have something in the ring, but know full well that they're not going to win. <laughs> well, we said on our show, like, you know, in the past, that Nintendo's success in the handheld market still continues to amaze me. Yeah. You mentioned, like, you know, everyone's got smartphones and that now is. Yeah. But still, the 3D, well, is it the 3 well, the DS is still, like, one of the most popular game consoles, not even just handheld game consoles of all time. Mm. So it just goes to show, although all these people have handheld uh, mobile devices, you still see all these old biddies playing DSs and stuff like that and they don't have a smartphone. You know, I think may change that though. You know, the success of Pokemon Go recently? Yeah, definitely. I think, I mean, they say, is it something like 5% of all smartphone owners have Pokemon Go on their phone now? Really? Which is like ridiculous when you think about it. Like, Mm. that's, it's quite high. It's like the best selling app well, it's not even a selling app. It's the best, <laughs> like the most downloaded app of all time. And I guess already. smartphone covers a lot. I mean, yeah, you know, people like you know Blackberries and that are probably classed as a smartphone. I guess. Yeah, but, definitely. I mean, yeah. what gets me as well is, like, you've probably mentioned Pokemon Go already, but there's, it's just crazy how big that's gone already. I was walking down the high street the other day uh, to renew my girlfriend's contract with her for a phone, and everywhere it's just like all the phone shops, all the boards are just like oh, come in and you'll get like free data for Pokemon Go and all this kind of stuff, which, by the way, is a rip-off because of it doesn't use any data. Because it's, it's GPS. It doesn't use any data. <laughs> it's going to download it. Yeah. <laughs> the weekend it came out, Ravi was at like 3 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday yeah, morning yeah. catching Pokemon in a, back, in a back alley. I must admit, I've slowed down my rate recently, but um, there's kind of a look when you walk around certain parts of the city you look at someone and you know you they're know. a Pokemon player. You know. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can't help but, like, I don't play it much. I play it to and from work on the bus. Yeah, that's it. And then kind of, like, sometimes if I'm into it, when I get off the bus, I'll keep it the app open and hold it in my hand. But I'll hold it in my hand in such a way that nobody can see what I'm doing on my phone. <laughs> <laughs> they all know, Joe. They, they all know. know. Everybody knows. <laughs> but you just see, you see another person, like, another guy, like, between, like, kind of up to the age of, like, 40 or whatever, who knows what Pokemon is. And, you're like, you like, you can see them with their phone now. And you know, like, you, you sometimes make eye contact. You're just like, yeah. You see, you see, <laughs> see one on his shoulder. Yeah. <laughs> I saw this great picture on Reddit today, though. This guy was looking around his room in, in his kitchen in Pokemon, and he had uh, he was cooking fried eggs, and there was, like, a, like a bird next to it, and it, it was looking really pissed off. <laughs> that's good. Yeah. Brilliant. So, uh, yeah, well, I mean, that, I think that's probably the next thing that they need to do on hand. They'll figure out a way, you know, because N- Nintendo, obviously, we mentioned last week the shares of Nintendo actually fell when a lot of uh, stock buyers realised that Nintendo didn't actually make the Pokemon Go game. Yeah, it was Ni- Niantic, wasn't yeah. it? Which surprised me because as far as I was concerned, Nintendo always owned Pokemon. But well, uh, Ni- Niantic did a game before, which was location-based, yeah, yeah, and that's the reason why a lot of churches are used as Pokestops because they were in that one. Yeah, yeah. What, what, well, what got me about that is I thought, like, oh, my God, it must, like cost them so much like to have like because every location has a photograph like a rep you know to represent yeah. the location and i thought that's crazy that they've got all this data together 
And then, I, and then I found out what they actually did is because Ingress was such a hugely popular game as well when it came out. Apparently in Ingress, you discover locations for yourself and upload them to the game. And apparently they just took all the data from yeah. that and just put it on Pokemon Go. <laughs> clever. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, clever. Very yeah, clever. Very clever. So I can't imagine it cost them much to play it. But yeah. I'm not too sure what the whole background is. Pokemon continues to take over the world though, exactly. isn't it? Yeah. Now, actually, speaking of, like, if you think of Pokemon's the biggest game of this year, um, you think back a couple of years ago on mobile, it was obviously all about Angry Birds. Exactly, yeah. A couple of years ago, three, four years ago. Well, Angry Birds has been ported to, uh, well, I was going to say, a new platform. It's actually an older one. Angry Birds has now come out on the ZX Spectrum. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> I wonder there's, how that plays. There's, there's always a version of Angry Birds that comes out on an older system, I think. I remember there was one for the Amiga. There's... You think uh, the Flappy Bird? Oh, Flappy Bird! Flappy oh no! Bird, oh it? God! Yeah. Sorry. No, the Angry Angry Birds one with the catapult where you. Oh God! That for the Spectrum, Jesus. Well, they've, they've done it with because <laughs> it had the pigs on, didn't it? And yeah. it had the birds and stuff like that. But what they've actually done is they've turned it into a shooter. <laughs> so instead of being on the bird side, they actually fly across the screen. And you actually shoot them out of the sky. I'm oh, just no. watching it now, and I was going to say it doesn't look like the the Angry Birds we all know kind of thing. It does look quite different, and you know, there's this. Little like minecart at the bottom, isn't it? With a cannon in it, or yeah. Something, yeah. <laughs> Shooting them out the sky, but I think you know they have managed to capture kind of the the essence of the graphics and stuff in it. So that's kind of cool. Um, it's called Angry Birds Opposition. Now I imagine that this is not endorsed or uh, officially <laughs> licensed or anything like that. And obviously, with the movie being out recently as well, though, yeah. it's kind of uh, yeah. you know back there. But apparently, you know, we're reading this on um, Indie Retro News, one of our favourite news sites, Chef yep. and Neil, um, and he's put here as well. It is you know, it's a game that will get your adrenaline levels going up as uh, the birds get quicker and quicker. So yeah, it does seem one of those. I mean, I think you know a lot of these kind of games, the best ones are the simplest kind of concepts. Yeah, definitely. And stuff, so. Most addictive ones are the simplest ones. Now, before we get to uh, Jim Sachs this week. I thought this is quite cool. Obviously, you know, we mentioned uh, Angry Birds on the Spectrum, which, you know, is quite an achievement. However, what about Monkey Island 2 on the Commodore 64? Hmm? <laughs> <laughs> now, obviously, this was quite a, you know, a high-end 16-bit game. And there's actually a little team who've done something called the, uh, the Scum Mock-Up. Now, obviously, Scum was kind of the language that all those old LucasArts adventure games used and all that kind of thing, wasn't it, to the interpreter? Yeah. All these games used. And... Uh, this is just a proof of concept at the moment. And they've actually done a little YouTube video showing the um, kind of the sprites moving and that kind of thing as well. But if you look at how accurate that looks. That is fantastic. It just looks like they've kind of degraded the graphics a little bit. Mm -hmm. But it's still got all of the functionality of uh, Monkey Island. Well, the scene that we're looking at here, I mean, they've actually posted a still on their website. And it's like the bridge at the beginning. You know, where you first meet Largo, I think his name is. Yeah. When you walk over the bridge. And there's... Um, You've got all the functions there as well, you know, all the, all the um, use, push, pull, pick up, look at, talk to. So at the moment, I think it's just kind of a rolling demo, and you can see it kind of, you know, how it would animate and all that. But you'd imagine a big part of that is obviously getting the graphics. You know, the, the interpreter for the adventure is just really text, isn't it, otherwise? Mm. Um, the actual game itself. So that looks really cool. I mean, they haven't really said where they're going to go with this. Some people are saying, oh, will Monkey Island 2 come out in the Commodore 64? But I think the biggest problem is, with big games like that, it's storage space. Yeah, you'd have to get it on kind of compact flash or some fat external thing to run it. You know? Well, Monkey Island 2 was on like, what, 15 floppy disks? Like, you <laughs> quite, know, like. Quite a lot for the Amiga. Yeah, <laughs> that was on the yeah, a megabyte floppy disk, not the not, not cassette tape on the Commodore 64 or something. So, yeah. I don't know. I don't think, I'm not convinced. I don't think it looks that good. Like, when you, when, when you just look at the little image on the computer, it's like, yeah, that looks quite nice. But as soon as you full screen it, I don't know. I don't know if it's just the picture. When you see it moving, there is. I haven't put it in our show notes, but I um, 
I think maybe actually if you you click on the second one, maybe I've gotten there. I've got two links. I'll put both these in our show notes. Um, I haven't put it in, unfortunately. But there is an animation where you can actually see um, Guybrush three three put walking. Uh-huh. And that animated right. sprite looks really, really like it did in the PC or the, oh, okay. the Amiga. So they have actually, I think when you see it moving, it's probably more impressive than the static image. But I, I think it's really cool that, I mean, obviously, this was way after the Commodore 64's era, which I think is why it's quite interesting. Yeah, I mean, yeah that's obviously interesting. I'm not, I'm not, God, I'm being very negative in this episode, like knocking everything. Yeah, you do better, Joe. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> what am I going to do? <laughs> but I, the, the, yeah, go I'm on. not saying it's not impressive. <laughs> I'm just saying I'm not convinced. <laughs> Crap all over our dreams. Going. I know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> but also we've got a guy coming up that did quite realistic graphics on the Commodore 64, much nicer than this, Joe, as well. Ooh. So, yeah. Ooh, <laughs> maybe he'll impress me. <laughs> <laughs> so if you do want to see this, I think it's impressive. Um, I'll pop the link to the uh, scum mock-up for the C64. I think it's a D64 file you can download and just run on it, so uh, I'll put that in the show notes at theretrohour.com. And thank you for checking out episode number 31 of the show. We will be out again next Friday, available from your favourite podcast client, uh, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, which I think is quite popular now. Yeah, Pocket Cast has actually taken over iTunes in our listens, so thanks, guys. I remember what you said going there. I was like, oh, no one uses that. <laughs> As I say, I've not heard of Pocket Cast. <laughs> no, a lot of people have, it seems. There we go. <laughs> yeah, so if you listen on Pocket Cast, shout out. And if you listen in Coventry as well, big yeah. up. And uh, we're also on uh, iTunes, obviously, SoundCloud, YouTube. The show will be out again next Friday morning. And now, over to this week's special guest. Now, this is a guy that Ravi and I have both been massive fans of. You know, I've been a fan of this guy well over 20 years since I was a kid like you know playing these games and marvelling at his amazing graphics we're talking Defender of the Crown Cinemaware CDTV CD32 Sorcerer Attack for the next half an hour on the Retro Hour we are proud to present Mr. Jim Sachs and we'll see you next Friday Ciao You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it's time to welcome this week's special guest. And it's our pleasure to have this guy on, by far one of the most talented Amiga and Commodore 64 artists of all time. The guy that did the graphics for games like Defender of the Crown, Sorcerer Attack, work on the CDTB and the CD32. Welcome to the Retro Hour, Jim Sachs. My pleasure. Amazing to have you on. Now, I thought it'd be really nice to start your story right at the beginning, so let's go all the way back. What first got you into computers then? What was your first experience? Uh, I was already out of the Air Force uh, and uh, had just gotten married. I was about uh, 33 years old, and I would hear kids talking about bits and bytes, and I felt really left out. So I I went and bought a Commodore 64 and uh, just started typing in programs from magazines and basic and uh, found that I had kind of a flair for it. Uh, I didn't have any kind of a storage device in those days, so I'd type in three or four days worth of uh, zeros and ones and things like that. And then, uh, you know, watch uh, some little lunar lander uh, do its thing and then uh, turn off the computer and lose it all. So uh, finally I I got a tape drive, got tired of typing in other people's programs and decided to see what I could do. So I bought a a book on machine language and a uh, Hesmon cartridge uh, to allow me to uh, write machine language on uh, the Commodore 64. I did my own little Lunar Lander game and eventually turned that into the uh, the Time Crystal demo. But first I did a game called Saucer Attack that uh, featured a fairly realistic-looking background of Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the first time. I had never seen anything like that in ads for Commodore 64 games 
and I didn't really see any reason why it couldn't be done. It's very, it was extremely time-consuming to type in all those numbers because uh, I couldn't. There was no drawing facility or anything on the Commodore 64 at that point, so I had to draw a giant uh, graph paper bitmap res- re- representation and then type in all those numbers, those thousands of numbers, uh, uh, to get a background picture. So, uh, Jim, did you have an artistic background? Yeah, I always liked to draw and, and paint and uh, sculpt and things like that since I was a little kid. So I'd say yes, no formal training, but I never never any formal training in uh, computer programming either. So um, two for two there. Well, I think back then a lot of kids did kind of learn, you know, the way you said, like typing in out the magazines. And I do remember, though, you'd often uh, you'd type in all the listings and then there'd be like a little mistake in there. And then they do the correction yeah. like the month after. <laughs> You'd have to figure it out yourself. Oh yeah, that was really frustrating. <laughs> yeah, in uh, in like Run magazine and stuff like that, Commodore magazine, Run magazine. I'd, I'd type in all those things, and and then only to find out. Well, I mean, m- most of the mistakes would be mine, and then just going through those hundreds of pages of code to look for one number wrong. Oh man, that was murder. And then to lose it all, of course, every time I turn it all off. So that was very frustrating. It was it was like a year before I got a, a, a disk drive for it. <laughs> well, creating a game like Saucer with such realistic graphics, um, it must have been spread around uh, uh, like a pirated piece of software. Was piracy? Oh yeah, a big problem on the C sixty four. Sure, it was. It was. Uh, it it drove me out of the Commodore sixty four. I was about halfway through. Well, I I was probably a quarter of the way through uh, another game called Time Crystal, which was really going to be something. That that was uh, everything I had learned uh, with Saucer Attack and uh, you know Times Ten. It was really there's still a demo running around out there that's that's considered uh, a, a pretty spectacular demo for those days with dinosaurs and, and a, a time machine flying down and a waterfall and all kinds of stuff. Then the piracy just got to be so bad that that I. Uh, heard about the Amiga coming out and decided to switch all my efforts to that. When did Commodore first become aware of your talents then? I flew to Westchester, Pennsylvania. I live on the West Coast and I flew all the way to the East Coast uh, for $199 uh, round trip and uh, uh, just walked into Commodore headquarters and uh, said, uh, this is who I am. This is what I could do. Gave them a disc of uh, saucer attack and and they uh, set me up in a room with their I can't remember his name now, but he eventually sent me a resume <laughs> a couple of years later. Uh, and uh, he, he said, you know, we've known about this for some time, and, and we considered publishing Saucer Attack under the Commodore label. And I said, well, that would have been good. You know, I, then I could have been really in the stores, because I was just mail order out of my out of my house at that point. Uh, still doing fairly well at it, but spending a lot on advertising, too. There was one month I spent $20,000 on advertising, took out a full-page ad and run or something, one of those magazines. So that's when they became familiar with me, and I said, uh, uh, you know, I'm not interested in the Commodore 64 anymore. I know you got the Amiga coming out. I would like developer status on that. And they said, okay. So they, they gave me that. I still had to buy my own machine and everything, but uh, they at least would talk to me, and they set me up with uh, the guys in, uh, in uh, Los Gatos and eventually started talking to Dale Luck and all those guys. Your your style yeah. of art is uh, really realistic and uh, beautiful. How long does it take to do an average image? Because they're so detailed. Well, on the Amiga, once actual graphics programs came out, well, like when I just, when I started Defender the Crown, there there was Graphicraft. That was the only one 
that uh, was on the market at that point, and it was still one pixel at a time, pretty much. You could pick up brushes and, and things, but you couldn't you couldn't really paint or draw or, or uh, tint with it or anything like that. So it was, I was still putting them down one one dot at a time, and that would take two or three weeks to do a scene from Defender the Crown. Uh, but then after after uh, Deluxe Paint came out, things changed dramatically, and I was able to do uh, a typical picture in maybe two or three days. Well, you mentioned that you, you know, you're involved in the Amiga very early. I mean, the, the guys at Los Gatos, they were like the original, like, uh, High Toro team, weren't they, before Commodore even bought them? Right. Um, That's right. Uh, yeah, I didn't know them at that point. The Commodore had bought them by the time I, I was uh, uh, introduced to those guys. And then uh, I, I did a lot of artwork just to throw out there on the Amiga. Um, pictures of aquariums that I had built and, and uh, carvings that I had done, like a, a, a picture of a fox uh, that I had done, an actual wooden carving, and I just put that in front of me and then drew it pixel by pixel on the Amiga. And then just sent those discs out, you know, just to users groups and, and uh, just anybody that would be willing to look at it. And some of the, uh, R.J. Michael and some of the other guys from Amigo were in Germany at that time. And these things started to become very popular, these discs of my art. So they were quite familiar with my stuff even before I met them. Do you remember the first time you saw an Amiga then? First time I saw one was at a computer store. And that was the day I bought one, uh, the Amiga 1000 for quite a bit of money at that point. You know, they came down later, but I still have that one. But I did all the graphics for Defender of the Crown. I've won each of just about every kind of Amiga, but that's the one. Uh, it still works. Uh, it was built well. So yeah, I saw it in, in a computer store with the bouncing ball on it, Dale Lux bouncing ball, and uh, I was totally sold. Of course, I had been. You know, I've been reading about it before that. One was called the Amiga Lorraine, uh, so I was all hyped up already. I think that bouncing ball and it was the the juggler demo. I think that sold a lot of early Amigas, didn't it? Oh, that was years later. That was a long time after that. That was after I came out with Defender of the Crown that mm -hmm. uh, the uh, the juggler demo came out or any any true 3D. When you mentioned you um, applied to be involved in the Amiga's development um, to Commodore, where did that lead to then? Uh, well, I not in the Amiga, but in the uh, in CDTV. I did all of the graphics for all of the user interfaces and. Uh, the music, the opening fanfare for CDTV and CD32, um, the demos, the the opening screen with the the uh, the rock uh, with the CD on it and the bouncing uh, laser laser light that makes the word CDTV rotate. And I did all that stuff. That got me involved with Carl Sassenrath, who was the lead on CDTV, and and uh, uh, we became very good friends and. Uh, uh, my wife and I and daughter stayed at his house uh, a couple of times. And yeah, my daughter actually, I'm sure you're familiar with the uh, um, Bedrooms to Billions uh, movie that yeah. Um, yeah, Anthony Caulfield and his wife uh, came out with. My daughter did almost all the filming for that. They called me and asked me if I would be their first interview. And uh, I said, uh, yeah, you know, my daughter's a filmmaker and, and she could actually set up the camera and everything. So she drove up here. She lives in, she's in film school and AFI Film School down in Hollywood, but she drove up here to Oregon a thousand miles to uh, to film me and set up all the camera and everything. And they liked it so well that they hired her to do all of the Amiga team, uh, RJ and, and Dale Luck and, and Dave Needle. It was his last interview before he died. Yeah. Uh, so she did like 20 of those things. And uh, they all came out just extremely well, except me, her own dad. Uh, <laughs> This, I don't know, the lighting or something, it was their first try at it. And, and uh, boy, I look uh, 900 years old. I mean, I'm 67. I'm old anyway, but, uh, man, I don't think I'm that old. 
actually the whole video uh, looked really good. It was, uh, uh, I mean, two and a half hours of interviews and everything, really an in-depth study of the Amiga. Mm-hmm. I was very proud of how they, uh, the job they did on it. It was great just to get a movie that, you know, really did the Amiga justice and tell the story and, uh, you know, because often you kind of feel like the Amiga gets forgotten a bit by a lot of the mainstream computer historians, don't you? That's right. Yeah, you really do. And and uh, it was back in those days, it was so far beyond anything that uh, anyone else was coming out with. The main thing is I would go to user group meetings and show the latest thing I was working on and everything. And everybody was so excited. Uh, as, as Dave Haney uh, said in, in some interview, Amiga users make Mac users look like IBM users. <laughs> you know, they were just so avid. They were just uh, so excited about everything. And the people that it attracted were just a cut above uh, all the other just regular computer users. You know, they're just really a creative, intelligent crowd. And I, I loved, uh, I was involved with the AMI Expo uh, uh, get-togethers in different cities uh, uh, in the U.S. and Germany, and uh, I would I would give graphic seminars on on how to do just about anything you wanted to on the Amiga. I mean, the crowds were just tremendous. We went over to Germany and had a I think it was that might have been the last Amiex, so I'm not sure, but we were expecting maybe oh, a thousand people. There were thirty thousand people at the gate the, the opening morning waiting to get in. It's just incredible. Must have been amazing coming from America, where Amiga was. M- not very successful to Europe and yeah. England, where Amiga was, you know, in most homes. Yeah, yeah, it really was amazing. I, I was always surprised that, uh, well, I mean, it was Commodore. They never really marketed it properly in America. Uh, that, that was very disappointing. Well, going back a bit, I mean, obviously, one of the games that many people um, know you for is Defender of the Crown. Um, how did you uh-huh. get involved in that project then? Well, Bob Jacob was a producer, and uh, he was a no, he was he was an artist manager, and he uh, he dealt with Epics computer games a lot. And Kellen Beck worked for Epics and and had created several games for them. So they got to know each other, and and uh, Bob Jacob hit uh, Kellen Beck with the idea of doing cinematic computer games, and Kellen was all for it. Uh, Kellen was on TV actually already at that point. He was in show business. He was the weatherman for a local. Uh, television station in uh, Portland, Oregon. Uh, so he had a kind of a cinematic background, and and he for Bob Jacob, he he uh, wrote all the uh, the gameplay and scenario for Defender the Crown. And uh, Bob said, yes, this will make a really good movie type computer game. Now we need somebody to illustrate it. And uh, so they both glommed onto me. I mean, it was uh, my stuff was out there already, and and really was the only thing that was really looking fairly uh, realistic. So I went to Bob Jacob's house and we had a meeting and uh, uh, we decided to fly to Commodore headquarters, uh, Amiga headquarters in Los Gatos the next day. So we did. We flew up there and met with all the Amiga guys and they had my stuff running on disks on uh, all their computers all over the place. Even though they had two artists working for them, uh, Jack Hager and Cheryl Knowles, and they, they had done the internal graphics for the Amiga and, and some demos and things like that. Uh, but anyway, they, they wanted me to do uh, Defender of the Crown. So we met with a programmer there, uh, and I'm not going to mention his name because, I mean, he kind of he really dropped the ball. We, I started doing graphics, and Kellen was writing the scenario and doing storyboards, and this programmer, who was pretty much done with his, his own work on the Amiga at Amiga headquarters, was really not taking it very seriously, and uh, he 
he went a month and two months and he thought he can just jump in after all the artwork is done and just kind of put it all together and program it in a couple of days. And that was just not going to be true at all. We were going to break new ground with this game. And so I suggested trying to get R.J. Michael. And so we, we approached him and he, he accepted and uh, saved the project. It was a difficult relationship uh, because I was up 20 hours a day working on this. So I had kind of a short fuse and he was born with a short fuse. So when we talk on the phone uh, a couple of times, you know, we ended up slamming the phone down and, and, uh, but it turned out really well. And, and uh, I wish he had been, I wish both of us had been given a lot more time to implement uh, the animations that we had wanted to do. And there are some things that still look pretty silly to me, the uh, the sword fight and stuff. You know, it just the sprites, uh, the way they look very blocky and, and move jerky and everything. We had we had grand things planned, but uh, Bob Jacob had taken on some pretty serious investors as far as, uh, you know, being uh, not too willing to uh, forgive late uh, deadlines and things like that. I'm not going to say broken legs and stuff like that, but, you know, it's along those lines. So, uh you know, we really did not want to be late and, and uh, put anybody in jeopardy. So we got it on the market and, and it worked out really well and everything. Later, I did, after they went under and, and uh, I got back the rights to all my own graphics, I did Defender the Crown 2 for Commodore, which is just a kind of a director's version. So I reprogrammed it all uh, in a language called the Director, uh, done by the Right Answers Group, Keith Doyle. Uh, so it wasn't written in C or any other known language. It was in the special language, wrote it, rewrote the whole program, every line of code, uh, put in all my original graphics and then did a lot more and then a lot more animations uh, that tied it all together and things and then wrote all new music. Uh, I was never really happy with the music on the original. Uh, so I wrote real uh, orchestral music, uh, real like a movie score for the whole thing. And that worked out really well. And I did it in five languages, got translators for all the narration uh, hired an actual Englishman to do the, the English narration and French. And then Commodore went under about uh, three days after releasing that title. So I never saw a penny from it. Uh, to us, it was a really amazing title because it was that first kind of interactive cinema style that we'd ever yeah. seen. And especially the CDTV version as well, which had, you know, a talky soundtrack and much more animation. Yeah, well, that was that was my version. That that was uh, the one I did after after uh, CinemaWare went under, and uh, that's the one a lot of people remember as being the real version, uh, which wasn't the real version at all. In fact, almost nobody ever actually saw it. Well, I heard when you were at CinemaWare, um, you, you didn't like the working conditions all that much. There is that true? That's true. Nobody did. They uh, put a lot of pressure on everybody and didn't pay worth a darn. So it, it just wasn't worth it for me. I only did the one title for them. Kellen Beck stayed through several titles and had had a pretty good career with them. Uh, it came from the desert, Rocket Ranger, uh, all kinds of stuff. And then he did another, after he left CinemaWare, he did another game very similar to that for electronic arts called Centurion. And I did quite a bit of the graphics for that. He, he approached me to, to uh, just do piecemeal, uh, you know, a screen at a time for that. I did probably a quarter of the, the graphics for that game. Now, uh, we talked about Deluxe Paint, and uh, I, I feel that Deluxe Paint was a massive influence on computer art. Yeah. How, how do you feel about it? And do you feel that paint programs match up to it now, or there isn't an alternative? No, it's... Uh, you know, Deluxe Paint would not only do the uh, the graphics, but the animation too. Uh, 
so all of the uh, towards the end of Defender the Crown, it, it started to go really fast because I could do the the still screens and then all the sprites in the same program and then create an anim that would show R.J. Michael exactly what it was supposed to look like. Uh, it didn't leave anything to the imagination. Uh, and then he loved doing that. You know, towards the end, it, it got really fast because I would send him uh, a disc with the anim animation on it. And he would program that in one day, uh, you know, just make it interactive. Uh, so that that was a real boon to uh, artists and programmers. And then... Uh, Actually, another friend of mine, uh, Gary Bonham, wrote the Anim uh, decompression routine. And I, I still, except for MPEG or something like that, nobody really does that anymore. Uh, but it was really amazing because it was super compression. It was delta compression. So it would take all the stuff that wasn't changing uh, from one frame and then just copy that to the next frame without uh, storing it again. Uh, so you could you could put long animations on a single floppy and the floppies you know what were 770k or something like that you know the first one i got uh, was ten dollars and i thought well but at 770k i'll probably never need another one (laughs) (laughs) so uh, that didn't work out so well i have have literally rooms full of them now so and deluxe paint came out first and then uh, a couple of other clones came out and i i was involved in both of them uh there was digipaint uh, from New Tech, and Tim Jennison was also was always a friend of mine right from the beginning. So uh, I did the user interfaces for for uh, DigiPaint, and then uh, Brilliance came out from another group that was that were also friends of mine. Everybody was kind of connected back in the old days, you know, in the early days of the Amiga. So I actually kind of switched to Brilliance at the end because it was the first one to do uh, 4,096 colors all on the screen at once, and uh, in high res. So I did their advertising picture of the above and, and below the water scene. Uh, the Amiga Lagoon, uh, with, it was called, uh, wasn't you know, it? Forest. And, yeah, Amiga Lagoon. Yeah. yeah, did that for uh, the Brilliance guys on with using Brilliance. They gave me an Amiga 4000 to, to do it with. I think that Amiga uh, Lagoon... Which I still have. Oh, sorry, I think that Amiga Lagoon convinced my dad to actually get an Amiga 4000. Just Not really. Yeah, a lot it. of people. Yeah, everybody was uh, at Commodore said, uh, you know, your your artwork sells more Amiga than everything else com- that we do combined. <laughs> <laughs> what what kind of kit were you using to do that that image on then? Were you, were you using a like was it tablets or anything like that, or was it were you doing it all, no, just mouse? drawing it with the mouse mm-hmm. on the Amiga 4000. Wow. Uh, you know, I got into a tablet for a little while. Only because another friend of mine, uh, Anthony Wood, who uh, is very well known now because he makes a device called Roku, which is, uh, I don't know if you guys have Roku over there, but it's the the number one set-top box Mm -hmm. in America. Uh, So he had a a company called uh, Sunrise Industries in the early days of the Amiga, and they made this 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 graphics tablet, and he sent me one, and I used it in my demos uh, when I was giving graphics seminars and stuff, but I never really got into using it on my own. Let's move on to the CDTV then, because uh, obviously that was a very pioneering product when it um, first got announced back in 1990. When did you first learn about the CDTV and how did your involvement start in that then? Yeah, I was already involved with Commodore, so I was on it right from the very beginning. And uh, they had contracted with me through another friend of mine, Reichart von Wilschild, who who was uh, uh, the head of uh, Prolific Publishing. And he's still my publisher on my aquarium program. And uh, he provided the crew, the, the programmers, to do almost all of the internal programming for uh, CDTV and uh, all the user interfaces and how they work and all that kind of stuff. So 
I, I had known him for 10 years already at that point. And uh, he said, well, of course, there's nobody else to do all the, uh, all the graphics and, and stuff for CDTV. So uh, just do anything you want. Maybe something in Crawlman glass. And that was his entire uh, contribution. <laughs> <laughs> that was a brief. Uh, so, yeah. So I, I went home and, uh, and did that. And, and they accepted everything. Uh, Carl Sassenrath was actually the lead at, Co- at Commodore for, for that whole product. And uh, I had quite a few meetings with him, quite a few phone conversations. But they ended up just using all of my stuff pretty much verbatim as I, as I turned it in. They had ideas on what should be in the little boxes and stuff. And we, we programmed in our names. If you, if you put the... Uh, the the language uh, and press a, a few keystrokes and everything, our names all come up and, uh, instead of the languages and a little few Easter eggs and stuff like that that I built in. Uh, that was fun, though. I, I really enjoyed working on, on CDTV. Not so much CD32. I had some really good ideas on that, and, and it was a great machine implemented very badly uh, and then advertised very badly by Commodore. By that time, Carl Sassenrath was not on the project anymore, so I had to deal directly with Commodore. Um, and they wanted me to do all the opening title screens and the opening fanfare music and all that kind of stuff, which they did keep. But uh, for my title screens, they, they threw away all the high-res stuff and, and kept these very very uh, pixelated uh, pictures of CDs and everything flying onto the screen that looked like you know, a, a five-year-old Nintendo or something. It didn't. It didn't look like anything that that was the next generation CD TV. You know, and and nobody could really get on board. You know, they uh, they just want to rush it out the door and uh, put it in Toys R Us and and not take it really seriously at all. What was your original um, look for the CD32 then? What did you have in mind for it? The the UI. Oh, just very. They they kept. There's a uh, a background of of like uh, the cameras flying through space and. And there's these these color bands that are coming toward you, and th- they kept that background. But then they they put in this uh, this overlay on top of it instead of the very highly detailed. I had a, a real nice logo for for CD32 that I had done. Actually, I flew there and and uh, spent a couple of days talking to their programmers and and everybody. And then they uh, they just canceled everything that I had that I had uh, hoped for and and went with this other. Uh, logo for CD32, very blocky, uh, very ragged around the edges for no reason at all. I mean, it could have been anti-alias, could have been in high res, but they didn't do it. And, I, and no one ever really explained to me why, but I, I didn't really have any contact with them after that. And, uh, and they went under shortly thereafter. So you know, It did all seem very strange because the CDTV kind of looked very... It was very stylish and very elegant, the UI on that, I thought. But like you said, the CD32 looked a bit more... I know, and that was all low-res. Yeah. That was all just <laughs> me anti-aliasing low-res to make it look stylish and elegant, and uh, which I, I could have done on, on CD32, but uh, you had high-res available, so I didn't see any real reason for it. But they didn't use any of that, so I don't know. And then I got involved doing my game for it, uh, Defender of the Crown 2, and, and uh, spent a year doing nothing but that. And they, they did all the packaging, Commodore did, and, and it, that turned out pretty well. Look looked good and, and uh, pretty slick and stylish on that, and then went under. Were you uh, surprised when Commodore went bust? Oh, not towards the end. There were rumors. Uh, there, were, there were rumors that, that the... You know, the higher ups were using Commodore as a money pump, you know, where they would they would buy a bunch of their own stock and then do really smart things and the stock would go way up and then they'd sell and then they'd do something really dumb on purpose, advertising wise or logistics. 
and then buy it and the stock would go way down. They buy it all back and just over and over. And you could see that, you know, you can see the, uh, the graph. So eventually uh, they just went one, one step too far and uh, lost the company. Uh, you know, it was a heartbreaking because why does something have to be bigger and bigger every year if they employ 6,000 people or whatever it was and they're making a fine product and everything, you know, why does Wall Street have to determine whether it lives or dies, you know, whether the, you know, the stock increases every year? You know, why can't something just be stable and employ a lot of people and everybody's happy? You know? just never quite understood that. Well, you, you mentioned the execs there, and they used to fly around in private jets, and they were like, you know, offices yeah. in the Bahamas and all that, I heard as well. Yeah, Irving Gould, his, uh, uh, his house in the Bahamas, just the architect's fee was a million dollars just to design it. So, you know, he got out of Commodore and, and uh, uh, closed up the company. And I, there's videos of, of Commodore headquarters with literally weeds growing in the parking lot and a few people still there in the warehouse, uh, Dave Haney and a few guys that are, that are looking at just boxes and boxes of unshipped products and everything. And some of them just, you know, filling up vans and taking them home. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of Dale Luck's uh, warehouse that he's got in in, uh, in the Bay Area of California. I looked at it a couple of days ago. It's unbelievable. All the Commodore stuff and, and game machines and things, floor to ceiling, like two stories high, as far as you can see. Uh, you know, the final scene from uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark with the, uh, with the Lost Ark being placed in this warehouse that you can't even see the end of it. That's exactly how it is. <laughs> it sounds like heaven. <laughs> yeah. Is the original Lorraine in there as well then? Oh, yes. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yes. The, the whole breadboard and everything. Yeah, yeah. it's still there. Uh, he, he's got a little glass, uh, plexiglass case around that, but it's sitting up on its, on its edge, and you have to look through a few other things to see it back behind a few things. But he showed me just I was there like uh, two days last week. I mean, you can't even walk in the place. It, it, you would have to move some of the game machines just to start walking into it. Uh, there's a forklift down at the other end, but it's buried by years and years of, of uh, debris from other game machines and stuff. I mean, not just Commodore stuff, but, you know, Miss Pac-Man and just every, every style, of the original Star Wars machines and everything. Unbelievable. You could get trapped in there for days. And you wouldn't care. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing. I, I, I asked him, does anybody come and check on you every once in a while, you know, to see if the, your bleached bones are sticking out from underneath some of this stuff? And he said, oh, yeah, my wife does, you know, every couple of days. <laughs> Slides food under the door. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, after Commodore, how long did you stick with the Amiga then? Uh, through the Amiga 4000. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, since there, there was a, a core, and there still are, you know, a core of people that are trying to resurrect it and everything uh, but it was you know handwriting's on the wall I had to switch to the PC and so I learned C uh, did a few experiments and then I kept seeing this um, very primitive aquarium program that Microsoft had written just to have as the default screensaver in Windows after about three years of looking at that thing in, in big box warehouses on every single screen, I said, okay, enough is enough. I'm, I'm going to take the market away from these guys. Uh, they've had three years to run with this stupid little, you know, bit maps being dragged across the screen. That's all it is. I'm going to make an aquarium that looks like a real aquarium that you can't tell that is not a real aquarium. So I spent a year in, in 1999 uh, into 2000 and uh, wrote the Serene Screen Aquarium I had to learn C, so it, you know it took a while. 
and then put it up uh, in a website called 3dfiles.com, which was very early 3D graphics. And just anybody that was interested in that type of thing would go to that website and download the latest thing that day in semi-3D looking things. Uh, but early things were stuff like the juggler was on the Amiga and stuff like that, only uh, finally running in Windows. Uh, so I came along and, and put this thing up. And within a month, it had a million downloads. And I'm getting letters from all these people, uh, like the, the curators of the website, said, you're the first one to reach a million downloads. I can't believe it. You know, what, you know, how did you do this? And so I started selling it just out of my house, uh, set up a website that, that could take credit cards, and it just skyrocketed. You know, within a month, uh, the credit card company was withholding all the money because no one had ever done this type of thing before, and I'm selling something that's not real. I'm selling a key code for a computer program where pretend fish are just made <laughs> out of you know dots of light on a computer screen. What are you actually selling, and how are you making so much money? You know, people, we have we have sites selling diamonds that are not not doing you know three grand a day like you're you're doing. I said, well, you know, I just kind of invented a price of 1995. I don't know if that's, you know, is that a, I never changed it. I, I always was afraid to, am I twice as high as I should be? You know, would I have four times the volume if I was half the price? I never got a chance to find out. I was always afraid to change it. So anyway, it just skyrocketed and, and suddenly, uh, uh, you know, I could finish my house down in California and we bought a big property up here in Oregon and I started building my dream house and, and eventually the bottom fell out of that market and uh, I'm working on the house all alone for the last six years. <laughs> I, I say most of your work seems to be, uh, your, most of your successful work seems to be based around fish. Um, do you kind of like fish and do you have uh, oh, yeah. fish tanks and stuff yourself? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I always wanted to have a, a marine aquarium. When I was in the Air Force, uh, we used to, I used to fly to Hawaii on, on almost every trip uh, to start with and we'd make a tour of... Uh, Asia and then come back. Uh, so every time I'd land in Hawaii uh, four times a month, I'd go downtown to a tropical fish store that had one of the first saltwater aquariums. And I was just mesmerized by it. You know, I just, uh, these fish, how could they be so beautiful? You know, it just was amazing. So I always wanted to do something along those lines. And then, uh, then I did the above and, the, and below the water scene, the Amiga Lagoon uh, picture. And, and that, you know, the aquarium was just the bottom half of that. And eventually, I was I was going to do other screensavers that were the top half, uh, that were a butterfly habitat, a uh, terrarium with little tree frogs and lizards and things, and a uh, an aviary with uh, tropical birds. And they would all be in the same suite of programs of desktop life, so that if you had about a 32-inch monitor or something, it would be the real size that those objects would be, those animals. Uh, and then they would all go together, and and you could. I, I was going to play off the success of the aquarium, but it was so successful that I got lazy, and I never followed it up with the other ones. I really should have. But it just looked like you know a year, two years, three years. I thought at first, well, somebody from Korea is going to come along and take this away from me, or Taiwan, or something. They're going to take the market away because it's just too successful, mm -hmm. or Microsoft. So. Microsoft, uh, a guy named Michael Lappin, uh, one of their executives, uh, called me up and said, you know, I was scuba diving on Maui, and I went back to turn in the, my equipment, and, and the shop had this aquarium program running on the screen. And I said, oh, boy, how, how are you running that? That's a video of a real aquarium. And uh, 
I said, no, this is a computer program. He said, no, I work for Microsoft. That's, that's not a computer program. That's, that's a video of a real aquarium. And so they showed him, you know, that, no, here's where we download it right here. So he called me up and I said, Microsoft wants to use your aquarium. So I said, great, what's in it for me? He said, oh, a fantastic business opportunity. <laughs> so anyway, they, they made me all these promises verbally over the phone, not one of which they kept. Uh, there, were, there were like five major things that were supposed to happen and not one of them happened. So for the Microsoft Plus pack, they featured the aquarium on the cover and they advertised that uh, it was going to be the, uh, the feature of the, of the uh, disc. And then they had some other uh, little utilities and stuff. And uh, they said, okay, your aquarium is just going to be one of the, this suite of, of utilities that we sell for 1995. So I said, well, okay, what do I get? Well, we're going to feature your website on the Microsoft, the MSN website, and people will click on it and go and buy the real aquarium from you because we're just getting a crippled version here on the uh, Plus Pack. So I said, well, it's fantastic. You know, that you must get, you know, 500 hits a day on MSN.com. That would be great. So <laughs> they... Uh, they featured it uh, in the plus pack and then it got bigger and bigger and uh, they called me up and they said, we've just done a focus group study, uh, you know, in five different cities and found that people are not only willing to buy the, the whole disc just for your, your aquarium, but they're willing to pay twice as much. So we're going to charge $40 for it now. So I said, well, you know, you're just getting a little crippled version of the program with only three fish and none of the features, uh, you know, aren't people going to be upset when they come to me to buy the real one? They said, well, you can, you can give them a discount because they bought the $40 one. So I said, well, I'm not sure how that's going to work, uh, but okay. So they ended up doing that. They made $40 million. They, they sold 8 million copies of the thing. I had gotten out one penny of any of that. And then instead of putting a link to my website on MSN, they put it at the end of the program. When you exit the program, it says, oh, by the way, if you want to buy a uh, of the real copy, click here. And the word here is like in a one-point font. Yeah, I mean, you have to uh, to use a microscope to even click on it. Then I got a few of these people that are very angry coming to me having to buy the real version after already spending $40 for the fake version. So I had a terrible relationship with Microsoft. And then they came to me. They flew to where I was, the vice president of Microsoft, to, to do uh, the next version that they wanted to also feature the aquarium. And I said, are you crazy? You guys did not live up to one of your promises on the last one. So we gave up. I'll, I'll never deal with Microsoft again. I, I don't blame you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, are you still involved with graphics much today? Or are you uh, totally building now? I'm totally building right now. Let's see. seems like I did something recently <laughs> on the computer, but... Yeah, I put together some of my old stuff and put it on CDs and everything, assuming that I was going to speak at, at the Amiga 30th, and never did. The guys that uh, organized the whole thing, uh, I had to pay for my ticket to go in. I didn't get to speak. Um, I have never been to an Amiga event that I did not you know, at least speak, and let alone give the keynote for a lot of them. And there's never... Uh, all the times I shared uh, shared limousines with Jay Miner and stuff uh, back in the old days, and and flew to Europe with him, and and uh, uh, traveled all around trying to get from Frankfurt to uh, Cologne. He and I and my wife we were we were traveling together, uh, and yet uh, nobody uh, nobody even asked me to speak at all. I had tons of stuff. Some people were pretty boring. I could have I could have livened things up with some of the demos and everything that I brought. Was that the one in California, the 30th over there? Yes. Yeah, because we went yeah. to the one in Amsterdam, and there's one here in the UK. And there's one in Germany as well, I think, wasn't there? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I couldn't afford to go to any of those, but 
Uh, I just drove down to uh, to the one in California. It's like 300 miles from where I live. And uh, boy, it was very, very disappointing. Uh, uh, hardly talked to anybody. And, and uh, I mean, except for the old Amiga guys, you know, we got together after the the, uh, uh, the actual show and we had dinners together with me and uh, uh, oh, just everybody. The, the whole the whole crowd got together and that, that was a lot of fun. But as far as the show itself, it was terrible. Well, does it still surprise you that there is such a big community and such a big interest like 30 years down the line? Yeah, I mean, there wasn't here, but uh, in Europe, I guess uh, I guess there still was. Anthony Wood the other day was, was saying the one in uh, Amsterdam was really good. I really enjoyed going to that. Probably the best show we've ever been to, I think, wasn't it? Amsterdam? Yeah, that, that's what uh, birthed this podcast, basically. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'd love to go to Amsterdam. Uh, that'd be great. I've, you know, I've been to England a couple times, too, and... and uh, uh, of course, Mike Crick I, one of, is one of my best friends, and he was involved with the Amiga uh, from the first day. He and his family had six Amigas uh, all at once, one for each person in, in the family. He's the son of Francis Crick, who discovered DNA, and uh, he's, he's one of my best friends. I talk to him every night. He got me involved with, uh, he sponsored a, uh, a computer graphics seminar in Seattle where he lives. He was actually like number, uh, I think he was employee number four at Microsoft. He was, he was good friends with Bill Gates. And uh, he, uh, he and Kellen Beck sponsored Mike flying up to, uh, to Seattle and, and doing uh, a graphics seminar which we had was was quite well attended. A lot of people from Microsoft and from even from Apple showed up and to learn how to do computer graphics on on anything other than the high end machines that they were actually programming on back in those days. They didn't actually use the machines they were selling. You know, they used Sun and stuff like that. That's amazing. So we're all quite surprised that you could you could do things that would rival that on on just the machines that they were actually selling to. Well, you've often spoken about how special and different the Amiga community was compared to other computers. What would you say was so different about the Amiga back then? The people, you know, yeah, the the people that were attracted to that machine were just so far above anybody else. You know, it was it was just so much fun to go to the uh, the, the uh, user group meetings and and just whatever I showed. You know, people would, would just be panting, you know, in the audience. They'd just be, oh, show us more. And then I went to a couple of IBM meetings. They'd say, yeah, this is the latest spreadsheet. And, you know, just <laughs> no reason to go to those things at all. You know, just nobody was really interested. But the idea that you could do something on a personal computer that could rival, especially once the video toaster and things like that came out, that you could do things sitting in your bedroom that could rival anything you would see in movies or, or on television. Uh, it just seemed very empowering to the group that was doing that. It ended up uh, not being so much so, and I was really surprised at that. I, I thought everybody would be doing movies in their bedroom. The learning curve was pretty steep. I, you know, I, I still can't believe that everybody is not doing uh, uh, dragons and stuff like that from Game of Thrones uh, seas using Lightwave. I, anybody could do it if they just sit there for six months and learn the program and, and have some creativity. Uh, I thought that everybody had these movies running through their head all the time, like I did, and just were looking for the means to bring that to life. And apparently not very many people actually do that. So, <laughs> and you could, you uh, could render them a lot quicker now, couldn't you? Oh, what a, you know, you should have, <laughs> used to have render farms uh, with, with 100 computers to, to get, you know, like five seconds of film. 
And now one PC can easily do a whole movie. Astounding now. But nobody's doing it. I, I just can't believe that, that uh, outside of Hollywood, uh, and now they're getting VR, which you're going to be re- able to uh, render in 3D and lightwave and actually see it in 3D. Just really astounding. My daughter's really into that down in Hollywood. VR, I remember it being around like 20 years ago, but obviously I think the timing for the technology is right now for it, isn't it? It really is. And... Uh, of course, my aquarium has been VR for 10 years, and nobody takes advantage of that. A couple of my, we've got to use a, a, a forum for the, uh, uh, the marine aquarium. There's like 3,500 members, and there's this one guy in England that had set up uh, with the, about like 10 years ago with the, with the 3D glasses, uh, the shutter glasses, and, and a big screen, you know, a giant screen, like a 40-inch monitor or something on the wall. And he, he kept coming back to the forum, and he said, I can't believe it. I can't tear myself away. It's, it's so real. It's just amazing. Uh, but nobody really wants to wear the headset. You know, they don't want to wear the, the, uh, the shutter glasses. So I was always hoping that somebody would come along with a non-headset version of 3D, and I would be the first one in the market. I'm already there. The, the program already does 3D automatically. And uh, so now anyway, I'm, I'm doing the, uh, uh, the Oculus Rift version right now. I'm, I'm starting to program in, in, in Unity 3D, I'm, which I'm learning. And uh, I'm hoping that that's going to take off because I've, I've just been, been there waiting for somebody to come along with the hardware for so long that it's, it's really going to be exciting when they finally do. Well, there seems to be a big hype about it now, though. I mean, hopefully this time around it will be big business. Uh, it's, yeah, I'm just worried that it, that's all it is, is hype. Because uh, until they, they get around the shutter glasses or wearing your iPhone on your face or something, <laughs> you know, it's just not cool. And, and until it's cool, the, the average person is just not going to do it. Uh, they need something that's holographic, you know, that is just sitting on the desk in front of you and, and it just looks 3D without any kind of glasses or anything. And someday somebody's going to come up with that, but it's not happening yet. Well, Jim, as a couple of guys who, you know, grew up playing the games that you worked on and have been, you know, pretty much lifelong fans of your work, I'd say, um, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast this week. Absolutely amazing. Well, it was fun for me too. Give me a call anytime. Where can people head to to find out more about what you're up to these days? Uh, let's see. Well, I'm, I, I log on to the, uh, the aquarium forum, which is... Uh, well, there's a link on my on my own personal website, which is fish-bite.com. So it's just all lowercase, so F-I-S-H-B-Y-T-E.com. And then there's a link on that to the uh, to the aquarium forum and, and stuff like that. You can go there. Or serenescreen.com, which is where I actually sell the aquarium. Although that's that's website is in massive need of an update. It's been years awful now. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, well, well, Jim, we'll pop all of these now show notes as well. People want to head along there. And we just want to say thank you so much okay. for taking the time to talk to us. We really, really appreciate it. Well, thanks for calling.